This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. What would you say is your biggest creative challenge? Frankly, it's governing my own temperament. Hmm. Like realistically, you get so many things hurled at you that are out of your control. Hmm. And remaining zen about the job that has to get done (laughs) and the unemotional reality of facts. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. If you've never wondered about the sheer amount of legal hurdles and sociopolitical landmines Seth Green has to navigate to make Robot Chicken, then he feels like he's done his job. Since premiering in 2005, Robot Chicken has won six Emmys and a diehard following that's kept the show around for 11 seasons— At the core of the show are those rapid-fire cultural references to the things we all know and love, but creating jokes around popular characters from video games, comic books, film, and TV adds a legal filter to what jokes can and can't be told. On top of that, as the social and political landscapes have become increasingly tenuous, Seth is actively thinking about what role a show like Robot Chicken plays in reflecting the world back at itself. In our conversation, Seth pulls back the curtain on how Robot Chicken comes together and how he remains zen when it doesn't. All right, Seth Green. Oh, man. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it because as a fan, (laughs) I'm enjoying this. And as a professional, you know, like uh, I'm going to try to contain myself for a moment. But thank you for joining (laughs) me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, So your career fascinates me because you started as a child actor, which I think is easy to forget because you've been a part of so many iconic projects. I mean, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Can't Hardly Wait, Family Guy, Robot Chicken, Austin Powers. I mean, just so many things that have really hit the zeitgeist in a big way. And so I'd like to open by asking, I mean, like, how would you describe the lane that you have created for yourself in entertainment? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, I have always followed my passions wherever that led me. And so I've chased the things that I was most interested in. Mm. Um, And then I guess it it comes down to the taste or the risks, right? Yeah. But for me, the best advantage that I had was that I was aware of what I wanted to do very young. Mm. And so by the time I was six, I was really certain I was an entertainer, which is a weird thing to be certain of at that age. (laughs) I realized that the older I've gotten, but at the time it was so lucid for me that it only felt like the common experiences. And and it took me a while to recognize that the other kids I was growing up with weren't having the same experience. (laughs) By the time I moved out to LA, uh, it was right before I turned 17 and I moved out here for good. And uh, while I was working on a series for ABC, all my friends were starting their first year in college. And I basically took a year off after I graduated, Hmm. took a year off. I... (laughs) I didn't test well. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't high on anybody's admission board. I wasn't. We'll get go it. with taking a year off. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, took a year off. But I saw that all of my friends were in college and trying to figure out what they wanted to do with their lives while I was almost ten years into a career. Mm. So I, I know that that was lucky. Yeah. I don't know. There isn't. I, I haven't thought about it as a lane. I've always known that I'm only going to get cast in the stuff that I'm going to get cast in. Mm. And I'm going to tell the kind of stories that I want to tell. Right. Um, and I'll get to collaborate with all the people that I get to collaborate with. Right. But I, I don't feel like I'm actually in competition with anybody because it, it's like if they want me for the thing, they'll want me. Mm. And if they want somebody else for the thing, that's not me. 
That is such a good attitude to have that not many people do. So. It's hard. That's hard. That's hard learned, though. That's like watching, you know, other people's audition tapes and seeing how much when you're on the other side of the camera, somebody either is the thing or they're not. Mm. You just the thing or you're not. And it's not about how good a performer you are, how well you can act like you're the thing. The part of storytelling on film is that you have to show the audience what you want to. Right. Mm. And some of that is the aesthetic of a person, the size of a character, the color of their hair. And some stuff you can change, but a lot of stuff you can't. Yeah. There's even an actor as versatile as Michael Keaton, there's things that he will or he won't play. That's a guy, you know, we talk about like a career prototype, mm -hmm. somebody who has consistently broken the expected paradigm of him. Yeah. Um, somebody like Robin Williams. That's, that's, I, th those are the only people that I, I can look at and say, oh, maybe I hope to dream to do things similar, you know? <laughs> I think, I mean, listen, I feel like you're you're definitely on that path, if not there already. I mean, I think you're being a little modest. So, you know, I'll be your hype man for this moment <laughs> and say that, like, yeah, you're, you're doing just fine. So oh, I, I find it interesting that, you know, you had that presence of mind at six to know what you wanted to be you wanted to be a performer and so w with that hindsight what would you say about being a performer clicked with you because it sounds like you really had this very clear vision of what you wanted to do so like what was it about performing that really connected with you well i love being in the audience and i love when the performers create an emotion so palpable that you as the audience feel it. Hmm. and i know that the ability to clearly feel an emotion so thoroughly that you can capture it on film, that that's not a common skill. Mm. And I felt myself very drawn to emulating, singing, dancing, telling jokes, making people smile, making people feel like being able to change a mood. Mm. That's the gift of a performer. And I, I felt that so thoroughly that when I was doing that, when I was recreating a scene, when I was learning my lines, when I was putting on the makeup and rehearsing the choreography. And then when we were doing it, when the curtain opens and you're doing it, and it's like, a, I don't know, if you play music, that's the only thing I can describe, yeah. I, I, can, I can relate it to is you're sort of playing jazz with other musicians and you're like, I can do this really. I make this thing go. Yeah. And sometimes I can go. Doo -doo 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 -doo. <laughs> and when I do that, that makes you go. That's what it felt like. And it was so clear to me that everything in me vibrated like at its highest tone. And I was like, oh, this is what I do. Right. And I definitely want to talk about Robot Chicken because you're on season 11, which is crazy to think about because <laughs> I remember when that. What the hell? It's wild because I remember when that show came out in, what, 2005? And it's just, it's given us me, <laughs> I'll speak for myself, just an immeasurable amount of joy. I mean, I, uh, well, I'm i not kidding you. There, I will find myself randomly quoting, <laughs> I'm so happy because I'm a gummy bear, gummy bear. Like, I will just randomly quote <laughs> bits and pieces from that show. And so, you know, before we really dive into, you know, the work that you've been doing with the show, I, I kind of want to start from the beginning there. Because, I mean, for those who don't know the story, like, how did Robot Chicken come to be this little slice of absurdity that has gone on for so long like for those who don't know like what is the story of how robot chicken came to be it's so funny to unpack it like 
16 years later because, you know, none of it was intentional. We didn't set out to make a show, let alone something that would last. It was around the time the, I guess it was the third Austin Powers was coming out and they were putting out action figures with it. And um, I had heard that Conan had some promotional thing, like a 12 inch GI Joe that with his head on it, that Hasbro had made and had it on his desk and stuff. And I was like, oh man, I should get at that. That feels like I'd gotten a little tired of going on talk shows and a little bored of having the same conversations or telling the same stories. And I'd seen all these awesome performers before me make short films, you know, like Dana Gould would go on Conan with like, I made this short and it's something weird or you could really curate your own chat show segment. And I thought I hadn't taken good advantage of that. So my buddy, Matt Senreich, who at the time was the uh, editorial director for Wizard Publications, Mm -hmm. which just to back up, there was a time when um, media was printed uh, (laughs) pre-digital and you had to go to a place or get a magazine subscription that would be sent to your house amidst the publication. And so- Tell us more of the story, Papa. (laughs) 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 Well, so Wizard, you also have to imagine, okay, so back up to a time when all of genre pop, like Marvel, comics, video games was not the vote. In fact, people look down their nose at it right. uh, as not a viable business, as not something worth investing any emotional currency in. Mm-hmm. So all of this uh, stuff, these ideas, these conversations, the information, it was relegated to the back pages of almost uh, boutique pirate expressions. <laughs> right. um, anyway, so my buddy was the uh, editorial director for Wizard, which was the premier authority in all of genre uh, information. They had the the best photographs, the the best humor, uh, all the best interviews, the best collections of art. It was great. And he covered five different magazines, uh, one of which was called Toy Fair, where they did a lot of photography of toys, um, similar to the way you'd lay out a comic strip, um, like a paneled comic book. Mm-hmm. And so we, be, we just became friends because we liked all the same stuff. And I said, hey, man, do you know anything about shoot and stop motion? I got this idea. I think it's me and Conan, and maybe we go to Comic-Con. I don't know. Something silly there. (laughs) There's a way to get a bunch of very funny pop stuff that no one was talking about in in 2000. Because this is when we started. When we we started, I should back up even further. Right. It was 1999. (laughs) All of of Prince's visions and predictions of the future had come true. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sony was like, hey, we're pretty sure that this internet is going to be something, even though everybody is using dial-up technology, because in advance of broadband technology, forget about fiber, right. people would plug their phone into a, um, an ether port, and that was how you got onto the web. So you couldn't really watch scrolling media, let alone any kind of high-resolution linear content, but Sony was like, ah, we're going to have a little bit of money. We're just throw it at this thing. <laughs> and so they did. They set up... Yeah, Sony had this... Screen Blast? What is it? Screen Blast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Oh, yeah. So it's a precursor to YouTube. And it yeah. was, they they just put a little bit of money into it. And we were one of the groups that they gave money to. And we were like, ah, let's, I guess let's see what we can do with this money. <laughs> and we turned it into 12 shorts, the longest of which was four minutes. Hmm. And all of them were stop motion animated, sketch comedy, lampooning, current events, and pop culture. And then you know, obviously the entire platform failed. Sony Digital crashed, but I had made a deal with their lawyer to um, shop around the content. We didn't own the content outright. They had what they called 
oh shit insurance if this thing blew up and became South Park, <laughs> that they would forever get an entity card at the end of the show and like course, something between right. 500 and 1500 bucks. It's called show business for a reason, man. Like <laughs> business, <laughs> it should be called business show. Put the business first. <laughs> then Senrush and I spent the next four years shopping it around every place from Comedy Central to SNL. We And we didn't know what it was. We were like, is this interstitials? Is it? Mm-hmm. But I knew it was something. I was a big fan of all that stuff. I grew up in uh, uh, LA and uh, Spike and Mike's sick and twisted animation gatherings. And so right. it was like there used to not be a unified place for all this stuff. You had to get on a mailing list, like an actual physical mailing list. But I knew we had something. That's what it was. We almost had a deal at Comedy Central in um, the beginning of 2001. And uh, September 11th happened and uh, people stopped making comedy for at least a year. Yeah. Well, that's not true. SNL got back there and The Onion got to business. So, but we were not going to sell this show. Right. Uh, and it took four years for the Adult Swim to be formed and for Mike Lazar to make some real renegade decisions that got us on the air. I can't call that a short story. That's a long story. That's amazing. And, you know, when you think about, because I as it can't be, you know, <laughs> overstated that this show has been on for such a long time. I mean, I, like as your approach to making the show evolved, because it's one of those shows where I feel like it's, I love it because it is so consistent. I mean, obviously, you know, there are some, you know, improvements in just <laughs> stop motion overall, I guess. But it, at the core of it, it's still so similar to like what I fell in love with to begin with. And so, you know, I just want to hear from the man who's making it. I mean, like, how has your approach evolved to creating this show, really? Well, the core mandate is still the same, that we want to make something that's not hateful or hurtful. Mm-hmm. Our goal is not to drag anybody. Yeah. Um, it really is just to have fun with the inherent ironies or inconsistencies of all of this stuff that we're actually really passionate about. And none of it is to the detriment of the intellectual property itself. It really is just saying, <laughs> yeah, I love that, but also that was kind of silly. Right. <laughs> and as long as we're coming from that POV, I think that we stay, stay true to the show. And that's the thing that we have to discern every single year is like, what is the show, hmm. right? We get new writers in, they're always pitching us stuff. And sometimes, especially during this last summer, when everybody's so politically charged and radically polarized and also individually hypersensitive to what am I putting out? Mm-hmm. Who am I giving a voice to? What kind of messages are we communicating? And if you have a voice, aren't you responsible for putting something out? Yeah. And so we, we really had to, all through that season, it's 20 episodes. So it's, um, I think it was five different groups of writers. And in each of those incidents, we had to balance what everybody is very passionate about telling Mm. and what is robot chicken like where is the place where we're gonna weigh in on this like Mm -hmm. there's jokes that george carlin can make that chris rock can make that Chappelle can make that robot can't make that's not for us right so what are those jokes that robot chicken can make because i think that that's such an interesting point of view especially like you said this hypersensitivity of you know, not even hypersensitivity. I mean, it's just it's just understandable hypersensitivity from everything that happened last year. Yeah, I've lived through this generationally. That's what's so crazy is, and the older I get, the more I see the generation before me also lived it cyclically. So, mm-hmm. and that's the disheartening thing about any kind of progress we make on behalf of equality across the board is that of we'll make a great progress, and everybody's like, "Yeah, we made progress. All right, live, 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 live." <laughs> and all the while, the opposition is like, mm, "I hate that progress. I'm just gonna spend the next." four years figuring out how to tear that progress down. And then they 
They do. They literally get in office and they're like, yeah, everything yeah, you did, I hated it. Yeah, everything, that's dumb. <laughs> and then same thing happens. We elect people and we're like, get in there, do something good. And they will say like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. But the ebbs and flow of progress. <laughs> they have to pull apart all of this other stuff before they can even get back to the progress. Uh, we keep going back to one over and over again, but it sw- the one swings further and further. Right. That's not going to change. I believe it can change. Mm-hmm but only for a sustained period until everybody gets complacent and then the opposition pushes back further in the other direction. You don't fight for the things that you believe until you realize they're being taken from you. Yeah, that is true. So this is this has been a very sobering period where I lived in LA. Uh, I was here for the Rodney King meeting. Mm. And I remember what an explosive realization that was for all of white America. Mm-hmm. And all of my Black friends were saying, I've literally been saying this for years. Yeah. And then even worse, in the trial, there was so much racial prejudice and bias. There were so many incidents of the officers saying things that, yeah. <laughs> that it was oh, yeah. profiled and racially motivated. You know, growing up LA in the 90s, that's all the gangs, that's all the mm-hmm. rampart division, like all the crazy uncovered corruption in Los Angeles, where you just have people saying explosively. Yeah, prejudiced things with authority. (laughs) And it's like, how do you even feel okay to say that, right? So there was a great evolution, I felt, a period of evolution where all the culture was pushing towards tolerance, um, knowledge, equality, all MTV, the music, uh, fashion, everything. It was such a blend. And when I really thought back about it, it was the same thing. Mm. Like end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. Uh, all the hip hop that I grew up with, like self destruction, it was yeah. it was all about pushing the anti violence messaging, and it's so cyclical. It just really is. So, right, you know, I remember when Obama was elected, thinking, "Oh man, this is great. We we made it." And then eight no. years <laughs> of history go by, and people are like, "I'm going to push back as far as I can." Right. So in in this current cycle, like. Where is Robot Chicken's place? Because as you mentioned, <laughs> there are jokes that certain comedians and shows can make that work for them. But with that in mind, and I love the fact that you're so aware of this, what is Robot Chicken's place? You know, our political commentary is very silly. Uh, in the first season of Robot, we posited C-SPAN as if it was TRL. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of... But, but that was at a time where where we were jokingly thinking, how are they going to hype up politics? And then they turned politics into reality television. Like it was so boring at that point, but you liked it being boring. You're like, I want my lawmaking to be boring. Yeah, it should So, you know, the jokes that we make about politics are like George Bush felt like a five-year-old in a flight suit Mm -hmm. and Bill Clinton felt like the party guy (laughs) that everybody was mad at because he was getting all the girls. We did do a Trump joke. Mm. And I just, it's like, you don't even want to, but they did, uh, it's him like Willy Wonka, like uh, Veruca Salt. You know, she did the thing about, I want the, give me an oompa loompa. Mm-hmm. Right. I want it now. It's so silly. I don't know. It was a great sketch, but also I was like, I don't know, put this guy on TV. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. And you know, I'd love to even just get a little bit into that creative process of coming up with these sketches. I mean, is it just like, do you just encourage your writers to come like, 
blue sky and then we whittle it down like what is sort of the yeah. like knowing that it's a hard show to it's i would imagine so because because it it lives in this you know really <laughs> like absurd kind of irreverent lane like you can take it really far but then it's like what are those parameters so like what i would just love to hear a little bit about like how does like a like a sketch come together well, the goalposts are different than you'd imagine. Like it, yes, has to be funny and it, it absolutely has to be something that necessitates being animated because mm-hmm. we've done, <laughs> you know, obviously even that has exceptions. <laughs> we've done a handful of sketches that are just two people talking right. or just like a couple people talking, but usually the circumstance are so absurd <laughs> that it works. So we, we do have a kind of, Hey, try anything. Mm. Um, what I find is when writers come to us for the first time, there's a real, the first week is just learning what will or won't bear, Mm. uh, on the show. And that's even hard to explain, but a lot of it's tied up in where the actual parody law is, Mm. right? So you get, you get a usage allowance under fair use under whatever is considered actual first amendment free speech and then that's qualified Mm -hmm. against all these other markers of commerce because this is a manufactured product for sale right and so wow it gets really great but at this point (laughs) i feel confident to go to court (laughs) and defend (laughs) any of these points that we've made because i feel like i've at least got a comprehensive understanding of the law to know where our um uh, barriers to, to successful performance art. Oh my God. If that ever happens, please turn life into art and make a, like a robot chicken sketch of like you in a suit. Like just That's like, actually very funny. That's not a bad idea. Like me, me as the counsel representing myself right. in a court. <laughs> I will see. We'll see if we do a 12th season. Though. Absolutely. Which I imagine you would. Oh man. I'll make that the season opener. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we're back, Seth explains the creative hurdles of making Robot Chicken and how he stays calm and carries on. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. For doing it for so long, I mean, do you still have the same amount of passion for the show? I mean, it seems like you do, but I imagine that you know, doing for something so long, you can kind of feel, I don't want to say go on autopilot, but it can kind of lose that that original excitement that you had for it. So, I mean, I, I guess, like, how do you maintain your passion for this project? The upside about Robot is it is, at its core, all of our passions. Mm. <laughs> you know, being re-inspired by pop culture is not a, a terribly difficult thing to do. Fair enough. <laughs> that said, over the years, I have pulled back dramatically from my day-to-day responsibilities. When we first started the show, we didn't know what we were doing. Nobody knew what this was. I had to like call everybody and pitch them. And all of my casting gets were like favors from the actors (laughs) who I had just worked with in the last two years. And we didn't know if this is a thing. I had to do everything, like to the point where I was doing the word processing of making the list of characters and what toys we were going to solicit to get them and making sure that those were legally clear. And then getting on the phone with the lawyer and explaining why we had clearance capability on this joke in this form (laughs) that not only covered us under the uh, exhibition of uh, a fair usage of the IP, but also that extended to the use of the physical exploitation of the IP in a manufactured product. So it's like not only being able to make (laughs) the joke, but being able to use the thing that they made as support for why the joke is a joke. That's the, 
that is a web of just what the hell. Yeah. God. I mean, I think as an audience, you don't even think about these things, which is like, which is that's great. my favorite thing to say. Is that's the privilege, right? That's the privilege of being the magicians. Is that you get to quorum with the magicians backstage, figure out how you're going to pull off this trick, and then you get out on stage, you say abracadabra, and the audience says, "Wow!" Exactly. You don't show the wires. <laughs> that's amazing. And so. When you think about robot chicken or just your career at large, I mean, like, what would you say has been your biggest creative challenge as a performer, as a producer, as just everything that you've been doing? Like, what what would you say is your biggest creative challenge? Frankly, it's governing my own temperament. Mm. Like, realistically, you get so many things hurled at you that are out of your control. Mm. And remaining zen about the job that has to get done <laughs> right. and the unemotional reality of facts. When I can stay in that place, everything works great, whatever it is. Whenever I am triggered or emotionally engaged in a way that is distracting, that's the biggest challenge. Stay cool, you know what I mean? <laughs> asking for a friend, how do you do this? Okay, <laughs> like what, what? Asking for a friend, um, how does one do this? It really is, it's practice. It's like, it's maintaining a, a, a consistent self-awareness too. That's the biggest thing. You gotta like stay aware of what am I putting out? How are people receiving this? And not to your own detriment, but just as like a sub program that's running so that you're always modifying your presentation based on the needs of who's receiving it. Mm, wow. And it's practice, man. It's like, that's why they call meditation practice. Yeah. <laughs> making a note right now for my friend. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, and so, you know, right. Oh, wait, just to highlight that, because that's actually yes. a really good point. One of the ways that I maintain that is through self-care. It's become all the more evidently critical over this quarantine. Yes. How much, yes. I, I could say for me at least, that I was working, 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 and really neglecting my self-care. Right. To the degree that I'm able to show up less for each of the things that I'm most passionate about because I'm spread too thin. And so that's the biggest correction that I was able to make over the course of the, the quarantine mm. was to really focus not just um, my own disciplines, yeah. but how much I'm taking on and not overextending myself to the degree that I neglect my own self-care. Yeah. That's critical. You can't keep your cool if you're not your best you. No, I agree a thousand percent. And I'm glad that, you know, I mean, I guess it took a pandemic for the, because I feel like for a while there was like a stigma around self-care or even just like asking, just saying that you need help or saying that you need to take a break. Because I think particularly in America, we have such this intense focus on like work, 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 like where it's almost seemed as like a weakness. If you say like, no, I actually do want to take a personal day from work. I actually do want to take vacation. It's like, we've just have this workhorse mentality, which is great in some respects, but then burnout is so real. And I think so many people have been experiencing that tenfold during the pandemic. And so for you, I mean, what is your self-care? Like, what do you do to, to kind of center yourself? Uh, I love sitting quietly. Say that again. <laughs> oh man. Especially outside when I can. Yes. I just like to sit quietly. It's simple, but it works. Breathe deeply. <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> not, uh, not be in a hurry for a second. <laughs> it's great. And, and, you know, I, when I'm able to really do that productively, then I can bring it um, into anything that I'm doing in a moment where something is super chaotic or uh, especially urgent. I'm able to just, right. Uh, right. None of the, everything's fine. 
that's so important. We're going to handle it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It takes practice. You got to get familiar with that often enough that you can do it. And I got out of practice, which leads to the fraying at the edges, which makes me react disproportionately, which I just don't like. Right, right. <laughs> but, you know, and I love to end the podcast by asking my guests all the same question because it, I love hearing everyone's answer. So at this point in your career, how have you come to define creativity? Is there is there really a definition? It's like the creativity as an idea is just the spark. It's your willingness to expand on something that may not exist yet. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah. Oh, that's good. So I'm just trying to that bring open-minded, free thinking. There's no bad ideas. We're going to try and create something that that hasn't existed. Or, you know, in the sense of like music, you try to create a vibe and maybe it's existed, but you're going to you're going to hit that same frequency. Mm, I love that. Oh, man. Seth, thank you so much for this, man. I really appreciate it. Right on. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. As always, make sure you rate, comment, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'll see you next week.